Week three of our preaching series, New Mercies, the premise, change is a constant. It's always challenging, often upsetting. But in all circumstances, in all situations, God provides new mercies, right, to those who choose him and his kingdom. Uh, in week one, we learned from the teacher in Ecclesiastes three things. You can't control your life, but you control your attitude. Enjoy the simple things and hold life with an open hand, and the Lord will one day clear the smoke, the vapor that, you know, that makes life so unpredictable and, and not, you know, you can't nail it down. And then last week, as part of his sanctification process, his process to grow us, to be more Christ-like, um, changes we should expect, right, in his plan to grow us. Um, we called it the great disturbance. The first step is when the word and spirit of God renews and transforms our minds, we're able to discern and do God's perfect and pleasing will. And we like to stop there. <laughs> we, we love to stop there. But to close the deal, he makes us a part of a body of believers that are not like us. Right? He says, hey, you all that are radically different, I want you to, to be in the same building. I want you to kind of be a family, and I want you to get along with each other. All, right? all different kinds of people. So that's the first kind of closing, the, 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 the culmination of his sanctification process is he makes us part of a body and says, hey, get along. Right? And, then, and then even bigger, he says, go out and save that crazy broken world, and they're not going to like you when you're doing it. So, you need my power. You need my power. And today, I want to talk about a habit many of us have picked up. Not normally considered a spiritual problem per se, but like so many of our odd little habits or, you know, idiosyncrasies and foibles um, that lead us to a life less than God's plan, uh, many times these little habits of ours that we, we don't like to put the word bad next to the word habit, but if we really look at them, they really do hinder what God wants to do with us, how he wants to grow us and sanctify us. So we want to, want to talk about one of these bad habits this morning. It's called procrastination, right? Anybody? Anybody? Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, we'll meet next week. We'll talk about procrastination. I love that. The action of ruining your life for no apparent reason. And my, my question, what, what do you procrastinate? I mean, we all procrastinate different things. A distasteful chore you know, cleaning the toilets, homework, a project at work, you know, something for your boss, whatever, calling a, a difficult or awkward family member. You just keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. I'm, Diane, just be quiet. Just, she'll, she'll scream amen any minute now. Everyone procrastinates, right? We, we know this. Everyone procrastinates. But some people bring it to an art form. I'll just be honest with you. This lesson has been a huge eye-opener for me. I'll just tell you right now. Everything I'm saying to you, you're going to think, wow, I hope he takes that to heart. I, I do. I am, and I will. It, it's really, this lesson has rocked me. Um, basically, to procrastinate, uh, put off until tomorrow what you could do today, right? We all know that. But it's more than that. It's more than just voluntarily delaying something. Um, it's, it's derived from a Greek word, uh, akrasia, so procrastination, and it basically means doing something against your better judgment. Dr. Pierce Steele, a professor of uh, psychology at Calgary University, calls it self-harm. Procrastination is self-harm, right? It's something that we do that hurts us, and yet we do it. Uh, Dr. Fuchsia uh, Siros from um, University of Shefford says that essentially it's irrational. She writes, it doesn't make sense to do something you know is going to have negative consequences. It makes no sense. And therefore, she calls it irrational, and most of the, what I looked at this week, they all 
It's irrational. It's, it's irrational. And that self-awareness is a key part of why procrastination makes us feel so lousy, right? So when we procrastinate, we're not only aware that we're avoiding a task that we need to be doing, right? But we're also aware that it's a really, really bad idea, right? And these two things, they just create anxiety, and then we can't think straight, and we, and we procrastinate even more, right? And yet we, we, we procrastinate, particularly when it comes to God's plans and his efforts to sanctify us and to grow us. We really do. It's like, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that later today. I'll do that maybe next week, and maybe the world will end, and I won't have to do it. So let's take another look at a scripture we read earlier this morning. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. This is kind of what I'm talking about, right? God wants us. He calls you. No, he's calling you to do something, and you think, I could probably do it tomorrow. Right? They'll, they'll still be hungry, right? And you start playing these, these games in your mind. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And we know lots of good things in life are only achieved and realized later on, later on, right, through all the hard work and the discipline. But at the moment, at the time, it's just miserable, right? We, we all know this, and that's why we procrastinate because we don't want to do it. Fairly simple. Um, so we have three options, right? We don't do it at all, or we do it right away, or we kind of find a, a middle ground. We kind of try to straddle the fence, and we, we procrastinate doing it. We think we're going to do it. We tell ourselves we do it. We're going to tell everybody we do it, but we're secretly hoping that we don't have to do it. Right? That, that's, that's the procrastination um, game. Um, and then we proceed to ruin our lives for no apparent reason. So it's no real surprise as to which options Scripture leans toward. It says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And, and I'm going to break that down a little bit this morning. Um, he, we've been given some incredible advice in that short little passage. Um, and if we follow this advice... You know, we, we, I don't know how many of you consider yourselves lame, but in, in the biblical sense, we are all lame. We're all spiritually broken, and that makes us lame. And in this passage, right, if we do certain things, right, then, then we can be healed, right? And, and, and healing isn't chased away, but, but we, have to do, we have to do certain things. So the first thing this morning from Scripture, we're going to watch a grand procrastinator ruin his life for no apparent reason. Um, but then we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to find a possible spiritual issue that's not so apparent at the time. But in this man's life, there was something going on, and it kept making a mess of his life. And again, it wasn't apparent at the time. It was something from his past that is affecting his future. Second thing, we're going to take a closer look at this thing called procrastination, why we do it. We're going to look at some healthy biblical ways around it of dealing with it, working with it, um, making level paths for our feet and strengthening our feeble arms and knees is really where we're going to be going this morning. So I'm going to take a look at Israel's first king. Um, a definite case couldn't be made probably that he was a, one of those procrastinators that raised it to an art form, but you could definitely, definitely make a case that procrastination was one of the things that led to King Saul's downfall. Um, he, he ended up being a, a procrastinator. But there was a reason. And as we look at this reason, I want you to kind of examine your own life. And it might not be as extreme as King Saul's reason, but the reasons might be similar, but not in, in scale. That's what I want to say. Similar reasons, but not as gnarly as what you're going to find out from him. as bad. That was a weird word I used. Um, so, uh, very reluctant King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. 
There was a Benjamite. Gene, I'm gonna, gonna be bagging on the Benjamin tribe. You're okay with this? Got the last name of Benjamin. I kept thinking about him the whole time. It's like, oh, this is horrible. There was a Benjamin, a man named, stand, uh, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, the son of Aphath, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Thank you very much. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So on the outside, we have a young Olympian type, right? You look at him and you go, I bet you he's in charge, right? And in fact, studies show this. We do this. All cultures all around the world, people who are tall, we defer to. I'm sorry if you're short, but it's the craziest thing. It's just this what we do. Um, but on the inside, he was, just a, he was a basket case of anxiety, insecurities, frustration, resentments, and self-doubt. And we're going to find out why in just a moment. But for now, if he had been either a complete Olympian inside and out, or if he had been a complete not Olympian inside and out, he wouldn't have had any problems, right? If he had been a complete Olympian inside and out, he would have been a great king, right? We would have remembered King Saul as a, as a great king. And if he had not looked so tall and handsome and he had been a basket case, he would have never been chosen. So no, no King Saul, no problem, right? We would have moved on to somebody better right away. But the inside didn't match what people saw on the outside, and this created a huge problem. And again, as I, as I, as I kind of go through Saul's story here, look at your own life, and do you see any similarities that might lead to if you have the problem of procrastination? So you're kind of, kind of going to compare, and again, not, not in by degree, because his is pretty big, but you'll have your own story. So when the prophet Samuel informed Saul that God has chosen him to be Israel's first king, he answered, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel, and is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? And, and as you read that, you've you got to get the impression that Saul is a little bit upset, He's like, how, what, are you jerking me around? This isn't funny, right? Whatever you're trying to do, Samuel, the prophet, I, 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 it's not funny. It, it's, I, why do you, why are you saying such an evil, mean, so, so what was so bad? What was so bad? It isn't modesty or humility because what Paul, or excuse me, what Saul doesn't say, but everybody knows is the horrific reason that the tribe of Benjamin is the now the smallest tribe. Every, everybody knows this story, including Saul. He knows his family, his clan, his tribe did something really shameful, and the other 11 tribes don't like his tribe, right? Last three chapters, I'm going to go through it really quickly. I'm not even going to show you up on the screen. It's a pretty graphic three chapters, 19, 20, and 21 of Judges. That's your homework. Go home and kind of dig into it because it is a crazy, crazy, crazy tale. Um, the sad story of the Benjamin tribe and the role that Saul's hometown played in everything. Now, I want you to keep in mind that the entire incident was most likely in the lives, in the memories of the people alive. It was probably in their lifetime that this had all happened, and now Saul, right? So in Judges chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Now in those days Israel had no king. And there was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judea to be Judah, to be his concubine. So in a nutshell, a certain Levite's concubine is defiled, read it, at the home of the concubine's husband 
which the Levite was visiting. I know, strange as can be, but, but there it is. They're just a happy little threesome. And some of the original inhabitants of the city who were not Jewish, not Israelites, they were Canaanites or Jebusites, I'm not sure what they were. Well, they surrounded the house and they defiled the concubine. So, um, the Levite calls the rest of the tribes to avenge him in a horrific manner. And as you read through the Old Testament, this was the way you did it. And you're like, I won't describe it, but you'll need to read it. Um, the Levites call the rest of the tribes to avenge him. Uh, the assembled tribes call for the city to turn over the guilty parties. The city refuses. Gibeah refuses, this is the hometown of Saul. So all the men, all the married women, all the children, all the everything is slaughtered. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't think about it very deeply because at the end, not enough women were left alive to keep the tribe of Benjamin alive. Right? So now they got a problem, right? We avenged, but we overdid it. Now we're going to lose one of our, we're going to lose one of our family. So they're told to go, go kidnap a whole bunch of non-Israelites and make them their wives. So how to make friends and influence people. Israelites, amazing people. So that, that's, that's the story. Um, now, regardless of all that, Samuel calls all the tribes together and gives them the king they want, but not without a tongue lashing first. He says this, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said no appoint a king over us. No, we don't want the prophets ruling over us. We don't want God through the prophets. We want a king like all the other nations, right? They got kings, they got walls. They, we want to be like them. So now Saul says, excuse me, Samuel says, present yourselves before the Lord by tribe and clan. Now, this is all kind of weird if you dig into it and look at it. Um, Saul knows that all the 11 other tribes are going to be thinking when he anoints a Benjamite as their first king, there's going to be a revolt. There's going to be a problem because they don't like the Benjamites because of what they did. He knows this, but he also knows that God has already made the choice, so he uses the casting of lots. And this is what the early Israelites did. It was divining, kind of. Um, they would throw the dice or the colored, you know, they had different ways of doing it, and that would be God's answer. So, he decides the casting of lots to show the people that Saul really was God's choice and not his choice because he knew that they would look at him and say, no, there's no way God is having a Benjamite be our king. There's no way you're full of baloney, Samuel, you're a false prophet. So, like, he knows this is the only way I'm going to get the, the people to understand that this isn't my idea, this is God's idea. Based on their disobedience to God as their king, right? Keep that in mind. So, after eliminating the other 11 tribes by the casting of lots... Samuel verse, chapter 10, verse 21, it says, Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, right? It was taken or got the short end of the straw or whatever it was, clan by clan, and then, then Matri's clan was taken. And finally, Saul, king of Kish, son of Kish, was chosen, taken. But then they looked for him, and he couldn't be found. So they inquired further of the Lord. They, they threw the dice again or the woman and them, whatever it was. Um, has the Lord come here? Has the man come here yet? And the Lord, through their little method, basically said, yes, he's hidden himself among the baggage or the supplies. He's hiding. So here's what I'm thinking. Paul's, Saul's, Paul Saul, Saul's frame of mind. 
I mean, he's, he's a wreck. I'm a minor member of a hated tribe, so nobody likes me right out of the gate. The prophet Samuel has just made it very, very clear that God is not in on this plan. And so if you're the one that's going to be king and you know God does not want you, what are you thinking? Woo-hoo. I wouldn't want to be that king. <laughs> no way. Everyone knows Jacob's prophecy from Genesis chapter 49. Who would be the ruler? From what tribe? Not Benjamin. Benjamin was the, was the, the ravaging wolf. Right? It was supposed to be Judah. So in everybody's mind, including King Saul, he's got to be thinking, this isn't going to last. This isn't going to be a forever dynasty because the prophecy's already been given. My tribe isn't it. And on top of all that, it wasn't a good time for the 12 tribes. The Philistines were strong. The Ammonites were, were threatening. And he basically thinks, I think I'll go hide, right? And then they'll just move on to some other poor sap. Maybe by doing nothing, nothing bad will happen. How many of you, that's the way you procrastinate, right? If I don't do anything, then nothing bad can happen. But if I make a decision, someone's going to be mad. But we don't realize by not making a decision, there's going to be a whole lot of people even matter, right? So we get this. So he's got all these ideas. He's like, you know what? I don't want this job. I don't want this job. I don't, I'm not confident at all. Everyone looks at me like I'm a, a mighty king, like I know what I'm doing. That's just because I'm tall and I'm a good-looking guy. But I don't know what I'm doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. He hasn't been trained to be a warrior king. Nothing, nothing like that. So he's crowned king. Those from his hometown support him. There's a group that supports him, but we read this in verse 27. But some scoundrel said, how can this fellow save us? Right? In a nutshell, they basically just said everything that I've said. How can this guy? This is the first king? They despised him, and they brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. But you know Saul's... It's chewing them up. It's just chewing them up inside, and it's adding to his anxiety and his self-doubt, and now it's resentment, and all, all of this is building up. And I want to ask you all, when you're full of anxiety, insecurity, self-doubt, frustration, resentment, how readily and how quickly do you jump at a task that God gives you? Or do you, do you hesitate? You think, oh, God, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the one. I mean, I, there's too much risk, too much physical risk, too much emotional risk. And King Saul is no different than the rest of us. And the question we have is how might these issues play out in someone who looks like a leader on the outside but is absolutely full of self-doubt on the inside? Well, two examples very, very quickly, chapters 14 and chapter 17 of 1 Samuel uh, the story of um, Jonathan and his armor bearer and the story that Douglas shared with us, the story of David and Goliath. Both these two chapters of 1 Samuel record just two of the more famous procrastinating incidences in Saul's life. In chapter 14, Saul has his army sitting, doing nothing. Right? The surrounding Philistine army is basically going out on raids on all three sides of them, and they've been doing it for so long that there are no, there's no metal in all the land. All the plows, all the metal tools for farming have been taken by the Philistines and crafted into swords and spears to the point where Scripture says that the only two people in the Israeli army with a metal weapon is King Saul and his son Jonathan. I don't know. They all got sticks, clubs. I, I, I don't know but they're poorly equipped 
And so King Saul just sits there. And he sits there so long that like thousands of men, they just go home, they leave. He starts out with 3,000, he ends up with 600. They're all just like, this king doesn't know what he's doing. He's, he's not doing anything. He's scared to death. We're going home. So he's now down to 600 men, totally surrounded, and he's not doing a thing. He's just, he's just sitting there. He's sitting there, and finally Solomon, or excuse me, Jonathan, his son, and Jonathan's armor bearer, they take matters into their own hands, and listen to me carefully, they took it out of Saul's hands. Right? This was one of Saul's battles that God gave Saul, and Saul said no. I want somebody else to fight my battle. And so he sat, and he sat, and he sat. Maybe he was waiting for the world in, and he wouldn't have to do I don't know what he was doing. But finally his son said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And he did. Long story short, the Israeli army rallies around Jonathan, the armor bearer. They run the Philistines off. But confidence in King Saul begins to erode. And then his most famous moment of indecision is right, Goliath. Forty days, a Philistine champion challenged the Israelite champion to a one-fight, winner-take-all, just like Douglas says. But what he didn't say, that champion was Saul. Everybody knew Saul was the champion. The, the Israeli army wasn't waiting for somebody to rise up to the challenge. They were waiting for their champion, King Saul, to go out and fight their champion, Goliath. And King Saul's like, nope way too much risk, right? I don't think he was lazy, but this was just too much. This was way too much for his level of confidence. But King Saul, he's hiding among the baggage, right? Figuratively speaking. Full of promise, but never lived up to his potential. Looked like a leader, tallest, biggest, best-looking guy of his day. Saul was the champion who was supposed to go out to battle, so for 40 days, he refuses to fight the battle with his name on it. I just kind of want to ask you right now, just kind of pause. Is there a battle? You know God's got your name on it. And you're just hoping and praying, oh, find somebody else. I'm going to go hide amongst the baggage. And while I do that, Lord, would you please, please find somebody else smarter than me, more prepared than me, taller than me, whatever, whatever. What battle has your name on it? And again, you've been hoping that God would find a Jonathan or a David to fight your battle. You're looking around going, why, why didn't anybody else do something around here? I think you've got to turn that finger toward yourself. There's at least four ways we pay the price when we procrastinate. First of all, you miss out on a blessing from God. Second of all, you miss out on being a blessing to someone else. Thirdly, someone misses out on a blessing. And then finally, everybody pays a price. A very, very short story here. When I was a youth minister, a girl in my youth ministry was cutting herself, and I found out about it, and I talked with her, and we decided she'll try harder. I was so stupid. About a week later, um, her parents got a hold of me. They were very, very upset. I, I think they still probably hate me. Um, during that week when I decided to procrastinate, not anything, she cut herself up really bad. And they, they looked at me and said, Why did, you should have called us. You should have said something. You knew that a week ago. And I was scared. I didn't know what to do. But I learned a lesson that day. 
And my, my pastor made sure that I had that lesson. Yeah. And again, it's not that Saul or procrastinators in general, if you're a procrastinator, it's not that you're lazy or even a full-time procrastinator, right? We know this because procrastinators are really good at finding things to be busy at instead of doing the things that they don't want to do, right? And that's not lazy, right? You're busy, right? You're organizing the spices, and you're wiping off every spice bottle, and, and boy, you're busy. You are not lazy. And that's good time management, right? You're getting things done. Right? It's, it's neither of those things. It isn't laziness or even time, bad time management. This is procrastination. And if procrastination isn't about laziness, then what is it about? Dr. Cyrus explains the apparent irrationality of it all. People engage in this irrational cycle of chronic procrastination because of an inability to manage negative moods around the task. It's not that they're lazy. It's not that they don't have good time management. It's that they cannot manage their moods around a certain task. Oh, I got to clean that toilet. I'm going to find 27,000 other things to do today because I don't want to do that toilet, right? And you think about King Saul, what it, he, he, he was a mess. This guy could not handle his bad moods, right? We know this. In fact, that's how we got King David into the picture is someone said, hey, I know a flute player or a harp player, and, and he'll soothe, he'll, he'll help you manage your moods. And so David's brought into the palace, and whenever King Saul can't handle his moods, David plays for him. And I'm looking at this definition, and I'm just thinking, that is totally rational. That's not irrational. I mean, what, what I mean is simply there's a reason why we procrastinate, even when it harms us. There's a rational reason why we procrastinate, because we don't want to do the task in front of us. That's totally rational to me, right? I don't want to do it. So we don't. We say we will, but secretly hope the world will end and we won't have to do it. And just think about King Saul, and again, his inability to manage his moods, <laughs> Now, the particular nature of our aversion depends on the given task that we're trying to avoid, right? Um, it may be due to something inherently unpleasant. Again, dirty bathrooms, doing something for your boss, making that difficult phone call. But it also might result from something much, much deeper than just a distaste for a job that you don't want to do, right? Because this is something a little bit different. A little deeper feelings related to a task, maybe some self-doubt, low self-esteem, anxiety, insecurity, Right? And you think, what will people think? What if I do a bad job? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I strong enough? Am I brave enough? But then the procrastinating only compounds the negative associations we have with the task, right? And those feelings are still there when we come back to it, and along with increased stress, increased anxiety, increased low self-esteem, and now we're blaming ourselves and we're hating ourselves. So it just it snowballs. It just gets so huge and ugly, and we continue to procrastinate, and we make it a habit, because it feels so good in the moment. Procrastination is a perfect example of present bias. Our hardwired tendency to prioritize short-term needs ahead of long-term needs. We do it. We, we, this is, we do this naturally. We protect ourselves from harm when we do this. We don't subject ourselves to harm when we do this. When we procrastinate, we feel great. Hey, I didn't have to do it. I think I'll go outside and enjoy the day. But then at the end of the day, you got to come back in, and then everything is multiplied. It's even worse. Psychologist Hal Hirschfeld University at, at UCLA says, on a neural level, and this is crazy, we perceive our future selves more like strangers than as parts of ourselves. Does that make sense? We perceive our future selves more like strangers than as parts of ourselves. So when we procrastinate, parts of our brain actually think that the tax the tasks that we're putting off and the accompanying negative feelings are somebody else's problem. 
And by procrastinating it, that, uh, which is us, they have to deal with it. And we, we have a little out-of-body moment, he says. And that, we feel good. That feels good. We have to realize that at its core, procrastination is about emotions, not about productivity. And the solution doesn't involve downloading a time management app or learning new strategies for self-control. It has to do with managing our emotions in a better way. Hebrews 12, look at it again. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. What that is is you can do something about your thought process, how you look at problems. You, you, there, there are some internal solutions that make level paths. Those are external solutions. Again, understand our brain is always looking for relative rewards. And if we, don't, if we have a habit loop around procrastination and we haven't found a bigger, better offer, our brain is just going to keep doing it over and over again because it feels good. All right, the dopamine, you know, we know all about that. Judson Brewer, a psychiatrist from Brown University, says to rewire any habit, we have to give our brains the bigger, better offer. Well, what Scripture calls strengthening feeble arms, you know, internal solutions and making level paths, some external solutions. Look at a few internal solutions. This, this is making feeble arms and weak knees strong, right? First of all, forgive yourself. 2010 study researchers found that students who were able to forgive themselves for procrastinating when studying for a first exam ended up procrastinating less on a second exam and doing better. But they had to forgive themselves or the, the cycle would keep feeding on itself. They concluded that self-forgiveness supported productivity by allowing the individuals to move past their maladaptive behavior and focus on the upcoming examination without the burden of past acts. So that's the beauty of a follower of Christ is our past acts are forgiven, but do we forgive them? God forgives them and says, leave them there, and we've got them packed in a suitcase, and we're carrying that baby wherever we go. Right, so forgive yourself. Second thing, practice self-compassion. 2012 study examining the relationship between stress, self-compassion, and procrastination. They found that procrastinators tend to have high stress and low self-compassion, suggesting that self-compassion provides a buffer against negative reactions to the events in your lives. Right? Forgive yourself and love yourself. Right? You're a human being. You're a child of God. Right? It's positive self-talk. And then consider aspects, outcomes of the task, right? Try to reframe the task by considering some positive aspect of it. Remind yourself maybe the time that you did something similar and it succeeded. Maybe you think about how, how great the boss will, will think when you, when you got a hold of this or how, how proud your wife will be when you didn't procrastinate it, right? How, how will you feel about yourself? And then finally, curate, cultivate curiosity. And this is, this is I, I think, this is the scriptural part. Um, this is when we examine our feelings. This is within, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we look at what, what is, why are we afraid right now? What is it that, that's unnerving us? And, and sit a moment and examine it instead of turning on the TV and getting past it, doing something past it. Examine it. Why are you feeling this way? Cultivate curiosity. And then finally, consider only the next step. And again, this is a little bit different. I read on another study, and it really wasn't a study. It was a YouTube video 
Um, eat the elephant. Well, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, this doctor says, yeah, not so much. Instead of one bite at a time, just, just one. Don't even think about all the rest. One bite. Just one bite. One bite. Focusing on only the next action helps calm our nerves and allows for what she called a greater layer of self-deception. At the start of a given task, you must consider the next action as a mere possibility, as if you were method acting. What's the next action I'd take if I were actually going to do it? What's the next thing that I would feel if I actually did do it? Maybe I would open my email. Perhaps you would put the date on the top of your document, right? Don't wait to be in the mood for a certain task. Motivation follows action. Get started, and you will find that motivation follows. And then the two most obvious external solutions, right? Making level paths that don't entail finding something else to do <laughs> to avoid doing the thing that you are supposed to do because, again, that's procrastination. First, make your temptations more inconvenient. Right? It's still easier to change our circumstances than ourselves. Uh, Dr. Rubin, another professor, author of Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits, says when we take what we know about procrastination and use it to our advantage by placing obstacles between ourselves and our temptations to induce a certain degree of frustration and anxiety. Like we know my wife and I at home, we don't the snacking, so we don't put snacks out in bowls. We put it in the fridge and wrap it tightly in order to get at it. You've got to spend a little bit of time. And it, and it helps us both. We snack less. You know, we, we make it difficult to do things we don't want to do. And then the flip side of this strategy is, of course, make your desired action more convenient, right? Make the things that you want to do as easy as possible. If you're deciding that you want to run in the morning, she suggests sleep in your running clothes. You know, make it as easy as possible to do what you want to do, the thing that you've been procrastinating doing. Try to remove every, every, every roadblock. And in closing, I want to look at the king that followed King Saul and see if we can see any differences, right, because they're both facing difficult situations. 1 Samuel chapter 17, 34 and 35 says this, but David said to Saul, because David had come, showed up, and says, you know, I'll fight the champion, and Saul's like, good. And now whew, the world ended in his mind. I didn't have to do it. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, this is self-talk. This is, this is David focusing on the positive aspects. Now, he could have easily been a procrastinator, but what's he doing? Right? He's telling himself, God has been good. God has never failed me. God is faithful. God's spirit will be here. Right? Rehearse it over and over and over, and he's got to do that because he's going to face a giant. I went after it, and I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. You feel him, right? He's, 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 what he's doing is he's praying out loud. I just want to make sure you realize that. In all my list of things to do, internal, external, you notice I didn't put prayer. This is, this is prayer. This is what he's doing. He's praying out loud. Like, Lord, man, you have been with me. You were there when I killed the bear. You were here when I killed the lion, man. I, and you are the, kid, the, the, the army, the living God. And, and he's just, he, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Absolutely no hesitation, no fear, no procrastination. David goes out and kills Goliath. And again, notice the internal solutions, right? Lots of positive self-talk, prayer, think on things above right? Considering only the next step, all I got to do is kill the giant. 
right? Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough issues of its own, right? We all know this, and David is he's putting it all to good work, right? This is straight scripture for him. We all procrastinate sometimes, but if you're procrastinating something that you know God is calling you to do, I just want to look at these results. I want you to look at them just, just one more time and kind of tell yourself, if you continue to procrastinate, you will miss out on a blessing from God. You're going to miss out on being a blessing for somebody else. Somebody else is going to miss out on a blessing because you're waiting and waiting and hoping that somebody else will do it. Everyone's going to pay the price, everyone. But if you choose to jump right in when God's Spirit calls you to do something, don't worry. You don't got to worry in the world, right? Because in all God does, he loves to extend new mercies to his children who step out in faith. That's you. Bow your heads. Father, we all procrastinate. We, we don't like, I mean, it, you understand. But you also gave us a solution. You gave us your Holy Spirit. You gave us incredible recordings of how you dealt with people and how they trusted you and those results. And we read these throughout your, your word, Father. And so we have examples. We have how you reacted, how they reacted. And then we have the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, if you're calling anybody in this room to do something here at this church, outside of this church, with a neighbor, a loved one, a family, whatever it is, give them courage. Steal them. Help them see that if they take this step forward, all of the incredible things that will happen. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit, who I know has been doing this before I stood up, and your Holy Spirit will continue to do what he does when I step down. Father, we thank you for this. In your son's name I pray. Amen.